From Entrepreneur Media, this is Problem Solvers, a show in which entrepreneurs do what entrepreneurs do best, solve unexpected problems in their business. We were completely wrong. And I'm just like, it's not selling. It was like, we have to start from scratch. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. We got a high-profile interview, a high-stakes episode. Here we go. No pressure, Jason. I don't know who, who, who the pressure is on. I'll put it on myself. That is what Maria Sharapova said the second I hit record with her. No pressure. Maria Sharapova, tennis star, tennis legend, like any good competitor trying to psych the opponent out at the very beginning. I respect it. I respect it. And also, I will have you know, this is not the first time that Maria has absolutely thrown me at the beginning of a conversation. So we actually had a pre- interview call before we recorded. And oftentimes when I'm asked to do like a pre-call for a celebrity interview, the celebrity is not actually on the call. It's usually a call with a publicist or somebody. And so when I dialed into this thing, I said, hello. And a woman on the other end of the line said, hello. And I didn't know if it was Maria or if it was her publicist. And she gave no indication. And we had like a few minutes of awkward chat about where we are. Where are you calling from? Where am I? Until I finally realized, oh, no, it's just Maria. It's just Maria's on the line by herself. There's no introduction to anything. And so at the end, I apologized to her for being so weird at the beginning because I didn't know if I was talking to her or her publicist. And she said, I don't have to, I don't have time for that. I don't have time for like a publicist to introduce me. I'm just going to cut right to it. And that I really respect. So anyway, why am I talking to Maria Sharapova right now? Because here's the thing. Maria Sharapova will freely admit that she can get thrown too. She can be intimidated. And you know what used to intimidate her? Business. When I had a a year and a half off from from the game, I I took a few courses in Harvard Business School and never been so intimidated in, in my life and intimidated to raise my hand to ask a question because I really didn't know a lot of the answers. But she was very interested in learning. If you followed Maria's career, you know that in addition to being an amazing tennis player, she was also always very interested in business. She had her premium candy company, Sugar Pova, and she was working with a number of other brands in various capacities. But there was this other thing happening in the background, which is that she was always being bombarded with new fitness gadgets and trackers and monitors and more. And she took advantage of this by trying as many of them as she could. And then when she retired from the game in February of 2020, she thought to herself how great it would be to help promising startups build the next generation of these tools. And this meant remaking herself as an investor and a strategic advisor. But that's not to say that doing this work comes naturally. It can be intimidating and she's learning as she goes. And that, that, is why I really wanted to talk to her. Because I find it so interesting to hear from somebody who is at the absolute top of their profession, shift into something that they're less familiar with, and then they're just like anybody else in that they have to learn and they have to face their own concerns and lack of confidence and figure things out as they go. And isn't that what we all have to do at some point? Don't we all leave something that we're very competent in and shift into something where we are the student once again? 
And I found Maria to be just really thoughtful about all of that. So that's what this conversation with Maria is about. It is about transitions. And we go into some pretty surprising places. In my sport, I hired people that I could lose with. What does she mean by that? Hiring people that she could lose with? You definitely want to hear her talk about that. I found that just so eye-opening. It comes towards the end of the interview. But first, let us take a short break. And then when we come back, it is me talking with Maria Sharapova about transitions. As a founder or business owner, you've worked hard for your money, but it's important to make your money work hard for you too. Sure, you can put it in stocks and bonds, but there's another way to invest that few people know about. You may love seeing art hanging in museums, but have you considered adding it to your investment portfolio? Masterworks is the first company to securitize multi-million dollar paintings so that anyone can invest in this exclusive asset class, not just the ultra-wealthy. All of their offerings are qualified with the SEC, and since launching their first one in 2019, more than 200,000 members have already signed. They've securitized over $200 million worth of art from painters like Banksy, Basquiat, and Warhol. And for a limited time, you can skip their waitlist with our unique link. Just go to masterworks.io slash solvers today. That's masterworks.io slash solvers. See important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. All right, we're back. You can find an edited version of this conversation in the October issue of Entrepreneur Magazine. But here now I am playing for you the whole thing my full conversation with Maria Sharapova. So let's start with this. Maria, I think everybody who knows who you are, which is a lot of people knows you retired from tennis. They also probably know about Sugar Pova. They may not know about everything else. So can you just catch folks up on what you are working on these days? Yes, absolutely. Well, once I retired, which was in February, the following month, I realized that my outlook on retirement would feel and look very different to what I had imagined it to be. I traveled around the world having a very singular perspective on life and my sport and my career. And when I put the rackets away, I thought that I would explore the world and give myself a little bit of a break. And comes March, comes April, and I find myself on meetings every single day. And I went from the court to the virtual boardroom, essentially meeting founders with compelling and interesting business ideas in the health and wellness space, a space that I know like the back of my hand, being an athlete for many years and almost being a guinea pig as well. I've tried so many different machines and products for well-being, for fitness, gadgets and and apps. And I I got in front of my computer and I tried to meet as many founders as I could. I wanted to listen to their stories, to hear about their inventions and see how and where I could help them myself from my experience and and also for my own personal growth, which I thought was really important as I look toward my next chapter. Did you feel like you knew exactly how to help them? And by that, I mean, you came out of a tennis career where you knew exactly what you were doing, right? There was never a question when you step onto a court exactly what you were doing. And you had been involved in business for a while before you retired, but it's a, still a different world for you. And I'm curious about what that shift is like going from an arena that you spent the majority of your life involved in in some way and felt exceptionally confident and competent in to one where you have a lot of knowledge, but of course, it's not the thing that you've been doing forever. What was that transition like? 
Well, I think that's the reason that really intrigued me to get into an arena that I wasn't familiar with because for so many years, as you said, I knew my routines, I knew what I had to do, I knew about preparation, I knew about execution. And although it was a very set regiment, it kept me on my toes every single day because you go out on the court, no matter how well prepared you are, things change and you have to pivot and you have to find a new direction, whether that's in your game and your mindset and your team, there's always transitions to be made. So when I made a, the bigger version of the transition and, and decided to go into a completely different field, what I really enjoyed was knowing that I wasn't great at this one thing. And I considered myself one of the best when I was competing and playing my sport. I was doing it for 28 years of my life. And the idea of learning something new, of challenging myself, of putting myself in the position of coming out on top when I feel like the, these pressure moments where I'm on the edge is actually when I perform my best, when I didn't know what was around the corner, when I wasn't as prepared, because you just have to figure it out. You have to figure out in the moment, on the spot, you try to learn as much as, as you can and you, and you become a sponge. And, and you also, it allows you to be human and, and realistic and sport taught me how to handle those situations. And when you get in a room or, or a zoom room, as we like to call it <laughs> these days, I think it's, it's okay. And absolutely human to know your strengths and weaknesses and ask questions and, and understand that you don't know everything. You know, I, when I had a, a year and a half off from, from the game, I, I took a few courses and, and. Harvard Business School, and I've never been so intimidated in, in my life and intimidated to raise my hand to ask a question because I really didn't know a lot of the answers. And once I did, and I got comfortable with the fact that I wasn't going to be the smartest one in the room from the beginning to the end, the fact that I was learning and growing was so fulfilling at the end of those few weeks that those were always the challenges that I looked forward to, whether it was in a classroom, whether it was on the court, whether it was in a business environment. Your answer challenges a assumption that was built into my question, which I really like, which was that I had framed it as if every time you stepped on to a tennis court that you just knew what you were doing. But what you said is that no, when you're competing at a high level, no matter what it is, you are going to always face situations in which you have to adjust on the fly and learn new things. And what you had found about yourself, which is perhaps one of the most valuable things anyone can ever figure out about themselves, is that you were really good in that moment, that you thrived in a moment in which you put yourself into something new even though maybe from the outside, it looks familiar to everybody, right? Like Maria Sharapova on a tennis court, that's about as expected as it gets. But when you're actually Maria Sharapova on the tennis court, it is uh, full of new experiences and- the nerves. Yes, yeah. all of that. Uncertainties. And so learning that, and I, I just I sort of observed this as a way of one- putting it to you to, to respond to, but also I'd, I'd love you to dig in a little bit more about what it's like to figure out that you're good on the fly and that once you learn that about yourself, how many doors it opens for you? Well, I think the first step is acknowledging that doing things on the fly with the best possible preparation is probably the best situation that you can put yourself in. You can't just be on the fly, in my opinion, without putting in the work and without putting in the hours and repetition. And yes, there are many times where I didn't quite know what I was doing, but I certainly knew the basics. I put in the hours, I put in the time, I, 
I dedicated myself to one specific arena and an air and I honed on those skills from every single angle that I possibly could because I realized that those small percentages at a very high professional level made all the differences. Now you have to first you have to get there, then you have to maintain it and be consistent. And then when you are challenged with a, a year or or some losses, then you have to figure out, well, how are you transitioning from that and getting yourself back out there? So, you know, in sport, it's there's always the the notion of you know where you're gonna be, you know what you're gonna be playing. But when you arrive in a hotel room and you make a reservation if a grand slam is for 14 days and your reservations for for 14 days, you might be out on the first day. So you better have a good agent <laughs> that can get you out of the, the last 13 days of that reservation, because that is the reality of sport. You just never know. When we talked before this conversation, you had said something really interesting to me that I, I can't recall the exact language that you used, but I was asking you what it was like to start to work in business, having it not be the thing that you had spent the majority of your life in and how to grapple with what you knew and what you didn't know versus what you just came from, which is, you know, such a deep experience as an athlete. And you said you can't expect to be as good at something that you just started doing as you were at something that you just spent many, many years doing. And that you have to take it relatively, that you can be as good as you can be having done this for X amount of time. Can you speak to that a little bit more, the experience of of maybe finding your comfort and your confidence in a different arena? And the reason, by the way, that I, I keep circling into this idea is because this is such a common thing for entrepreneurs. We are, everybody is always entering some new field or they're launching some new thing. And I talk to entrepreneurs all the time at all levels of success and work who feel like they are constantly walking into completely new environments and having to build on either nothing or something that they did before that they're only discovering is relevant now. So I, I think because you are doing this and you are such a, you're doing it at such a high level, I think it's really interesting for people to hear about. Yeah. As I stepped away from, from the game, I heard so many people that were near and far from me. You know, some of my closest friends tell me, Oh, you know, this was one chapter in your life and you're, you're going to be more successful in business than you were even in, in your sport. And, and I kind of, I get them this questionable look and I say, how, what, where, where are you getting this information? How do you know? It took me that many years, over 25 years to get to this level of one sport for, and a majority of those years were practicing on the back courts where no one was watching, where I had failed and failed so many times. And I was just trying to find my way with different people, with different coaches, with different methods. And it's the only way to, to get to success, but that is time. That's a very long time. And that comes with no guarantees and just a lot of money, a lot of investment, a lot of tears, a, some laughs along the way, good humor, you know, having the capability of trying to keep your feet on the ground while you navigate this crazy world of success and then challenges and, and going back up again. And so I question everyone because it's easy to say that. And I, I understand there's a correlation between being an athlete and as you treat your career as an entrepreneur, you hire people, you put in the money without 
honestly, any guarantee, absolutely zero. And tennis as a sport is, is a very expensive investment from travel to tournaments to just getting your racket strong. I mean, you're, <laughs> you're out of the paycheck. So just those little elements that, that add up. And when you come home with your family and you just don't know the direction that you're going to go in and they've given up an entirety of their life into this one sport and one life, there's a lot of, of pressure and responsibilities that come with it. And so when I start this new chapter, I mean, there's a few questions that I have to answer myself is, am I realistic about, am I happy about what I'm doing next? Do I want to be involved? Because I, I also have the, the the choice to, to not be a part of those things, to not continue some of the business ventures, but I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued to put myself in, in uncertain situations and positions. And as I said, I like that feeling of, of uncertainty as if I'm falling off the edge and I have to figure it out. Reed Hoffman, the co-founder of LinkedIn has this line that he uses a lot, which is entrepreneurship is jumping off the cliff and building the airplane on the way down. And that sounds like what you're <laughs> describing. That's extreme, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find that the founders that you're working with are intrigued by this kind of line of thought? When you're working with newer founders, are these the kinds of conversations that you have with them? I'm curious, I'm curious what they are turning to you for. Yeah, a, a few things. One is is my experience and if we're speaking about the health and wellness space, you know, I remember from our, our conversations a few weeks ago, I said I'm I've been a guinea pig for for so many different gadgets while I was playing trackers, heart rate monitors, fitness equipment. And so I think my experience in those years, I think is is really valuable in the input that I have. They send me product prototypes. Dr. Jason from Therapy was at my house a couple of weeks ago and brought over a few things that I've been trying every single day. And I constantly provide feedback on how I'm feeling, how my body is after a workout or recovery. Same thing with tonal. So I, I think from an experience perspective, that's an important piece of this puzzle because I want to make sure that not only are high athletes are using the product, but someone that comes home and gives it to their family, that gives it to their child. Online education for sports is also something that I've been a part of with the skills. It's an online platform, very similar to Masterclass, but focused on athletes as well. We created a course around tennis. Megan Rapino and Michael Phelps are involved as well. So I just spoke to the founder yesterday and, and they're on their on their series A round and I'm I'm on calls with investors and talking about the product. And I think I bring an aesthetic to the brand as well. After traveling around the world and, and being part of many in, incredible brands, I've worked with designers from Nike's to Tiffany's to Frank Gehry's, and I have a sense of, of perspective of how you, you use these products every, every single day and how they live in your living room to your gym, how you wear them, so and how, how they fit into your lifestyle, because I think we're the life throws so many products and, and gadgets at us that we don't know where to start, where to store them if we really need them. And I, I'm able to, I can speak well about myself, I'm able to filter through all of that and really and, and understand how something applies and, and if it can last long and, and be eloquent and beautiful and, and sit in your living room that you don't have to put it away. That's a really powerful thing for founders to have access to. It's, I mean, it's it's such a deep and also varied well of knowledge that you have. So first, I'm curious, when so founders set out, they build these things, they want them to be used by high-level athletes. How often are you 
testing something and you say, you know what, this was not built for a high level athlete. They got this wrong. Is that a common experience? Yeah, it is. Sometimes it's too bulky. Sometimes it's too loud. Sometimes it's inefficient. Absolutely. I I think I I tried one of the first few whoops that came on the market. This was years ago and it was a very early prototype. And at the time it wasn't tracking properly. And I said, this, this will take a few years and, and you see where, where they are now and, and how many, how many others are, are doing very similar things in the market. Yeah. I've met with those guys a number of times. What's your advice to founders on taking and using that kind of feedback? Because if somebody's going to build something, let's say, let's say those early versions of whoop and they get it into the hands of somebody like you and you instantly know what's right and what is not right. That can be an over (laughs) from the founder's perspective, that could probably be an overwhelming amount of feedback and a lot of things that they have to change. What's your advice to founders to how to bring and respond to user feedback? And also what have you seen the founders that you work with do really well as they are responding to that kind of feedback? You have to be honest and realistic about the performance of a product and and that if the founder is the right type of leader and takes information in the appropriate way they'd say well that's that's valuable feedback we're going to take that and we're not just getting feedback from maria we're also getting feedback from dozens of others and we see where the alignments where the similarities and then you make changes but i think if you have trust with with a founder and and you understand their their mindset and you're not there to give them critical you know, feedback in order to put their business upside down or their ideas and creations upside down, you've, you're in the business with them. So you've obviously believed them for a reason. You believe that they can execute at a very high level. And by providing feedback, you know that they'll take that feedback and they're going to bring another version that's 10 times better. Your response there made me think of another thing that Reed Hoffman said. Apparently now this is just a show where I quote Reed Hoffman. So Reed Hoffman has this really interesting philosophy that I don't, I, I can't quote exactly, but it's something like ignore your hardcore fans in service of your scale customers. The idea being like the first people to use something may like really love it for a particular thing, but whatever they love it for may not be scalable. And I think an example that he uses is that in the in the early days of LinkedIn, like users didn't want strangers to be able to like contact them. And those people loved early LinkedIn, but that's not scalable. Like you need to be able to build this thing that connects. And so the reason that I thought about this is because as you're you're talking about like right, it's not just they're not just getting feedback from Maria and like that's it. They're not building a product for you. I wonder I'd say, I'd, you know, I'd cut you for a second, yeah, but no. I'd say that the, the benchmark is for the high professional athlete. And yes, that's not scalable. But if the athlete comes home and brings that product to their family and their family uses it and it trickles down to the kids, that's when you know. And that is the story that, that Dr. Jason from Therabody uses all the time. Because just living with a product and making it successful in the locker room or the trainer's room of every professional team is not good enough. It's not big enough. And although that sets a high standard and a high level, that that doesn't give scalability any confidence. That's right. I love that. That's exactly the kind of thing that I was driving towards. Is like, how do you figure out where that line is between serving the consumer where you know you got it right, right? If, if you like a product, then they got it right. But if the product is just for people at your level, then it, it doesn't have a lot of customers. <laughs> and so they have to figure out where that line is. And I've, I've also seen this transition as I've gone from high performance where every percentage counts to 
It actually really doesn't in my everyday life right now. What matters now is that I keep myself healthy, is that I work out a certain amount of time that brings my self-esteem up where I feel good about my body, where I feel good about my shape or my weight or whatever the focus is at the time or my confidence or you know my mental stability. If I don't have a good workout in, it's hard for me to to have a great day of of meetings, of interaction. It's the way that I was wired from a young age. And it doesn't have to be high performance though. It doesn't have to be 170 heart rate every single day like it was. And so I think what founders are are intrigued by now is I, I knew what that was like, but that no longer applies to me. And so everything else does. And I can now, I'm better able to bridge the gap between the high elite and the high performance to the everyday. Let's dig into that for a second longer because that shift that you went through is, well, it reminds me of something that I I hear entrepreneurs talk about and that I went through myself. So quick story. I, as you know, have been in Boulder, Colorado for the last year and a half. Prior to that, I, I lived in New York for a very long time and it's still technically do live in New York. I will be returning. And when I was in New York, here's what I would do. I would get up, I would go to the office, I would, or I'd get my kids to school. I'd go to the office. I would basically sit in front of a computer for like a very long time. I would take no lunch break. I would take no other break. Occasionally I would have a meeting. I would like run to the meeting. I would blast through the meeting. I would run back to the office. And that was because I felt like there is so much to do, but also I am a just high performing person. I just want to, I want to drive. I want to do. And then I came out here and it took, six to eight months. But then I started I started doing as the locals do. I started going for like a bike ride in the middle of the day. And to my great shock, what I found was that I, would, I could leave work for uh, some period of time and I could come back and nothing broke. Like the world didn't crash. Things were okay. Yeah, things were okay. And I felt better. And that was a revelation. And I think that's a version of, the, of that is something that so many high-performing people go through, where they drive themselves absolutely insane, in part because that's how they're built, but also because they have convinced themselves that that is literally the only way to accomplish what they have set out to do. You have, your lifestyle by necessity, of course, has shifted recently because you, you're you not training to be a professional tennis player anymore. But I'm curious what that transition has been like for you and what lessons it might have taught you that other entrepreneurs could take value from. The biggest lesson is quality over quantity. And that when you're younger, we always speak about repetition because that's when, you know, I, I focused on the forehands and the backhands and the serve and, and the technical, the, the really, the things that will stay with you for, for the rest of your career. But the older you get, you realize that the way you train becomes very different. You're much more focused away from the core. You analyze things, you, you think of, when you come to the court, you already know what you're going to execute in the two hours that you spend there. I don't think I, I trained. I don't think my body was capable of doing more than three hours on the court. Then I do the warm up. Then I do the fitness. Then I do my shoulder rehab. And it turns into an eight hour day. But the actual physicality of where I'm, I'm the high performance athlete was three to four hours a day. So in the context of an entire day, that's not a lot. But I always found ways to, to sleep, to have a good night's sleep, to take a nap, to eat well, all the things that now I find myself reading about <laughs> because there's so many health, self-help books on the market about sleep and the importance of recovery. And as an athlete, those without that, if you don't recover well, if you don't get your sleep. When I played night matches at the US Open, I would take a 45-minute nap, 1.45 p.m. every single time on the dot. And it is just 
there's this repetition. I couldn't perform without it and go walk in Central Park before as well. So I, I, I maintain those smaller routines, although it's tough to sleep now. The, the meetings get in the way. Of, yeah, of yeah it doesn't app. quite fit as well. <laughs> it doesn't quite. Like, excuse me, I can't take this phone call because yeah. I'm going to take a nap. I, I mean, the funny thing is that you, you could throw that around. People would be like, oh, well, Maria's got to take a nap. I guess I have to move the call. <laughs> <laughs> no, it really doesn't go around. <laughs> It's one thing if you were saying that, oh, wait, I've got a night match. (laughs) (laughs) But it's another thing if you've got a call. But yeah, I I still, I I maintain a good balance between work and and recovery. And and that it's a very tricky balance and it's not 50-50 and it's not the same every single day. I mean, between all the buckets that feel like we all now have to shape and have to be responsible for, it's it's a tough environment to live in. You know, you get to the weekend and you, you feel like your mind and your body occasionally is broken down. You have so many thoughts. I, I see my fiance working from morning to night on calls every single day. And, and I sometimes think like, well, get off a call, you get on the next one, you get on the next one. When do you have time to process everything? Yeah. You know, you're just go, go, go all the time. It's just fine. You don't, right? That's, I mean, that's I'm the answer. Similar thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I hate those kinds of days where it's just back to back to back to back. And then at the end of the day, my wife will be like, what did you do today? And I will say, I have no idea. I just can't and remember. the last thing you want to do is talk about it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those, there, there's a lot of those days, but I, I like to process things. So I like to schedule time in between my calls so that I have time to write notes, to, to put thought into things. And not everyone is, is actually sometimes capable or has the luxury to, but I do find I, I produce better thoughts when I'm able to give myself breaks in between. What's been your experience taking your level of focus and competitiveness into a, into a different arena? Do you, do you find that it translates or you've had to learn how to approach things differently? Yeah. The first thing that comes to mind is, is preparation. If you know that you've done, if you have an important call, if you have an important meeting, if you're, there's something that you're going after, you need to spend the time with yourself, with the right people to guide you, to help you, to coach yourself through it in order to be ready. Because if you come to prepared to that particular call, meeting, whatever it is, situation, and you don't execute the way that you thought that you could have executed, your performance wasn't at the right level. If you did the right preparation, I think you take it easier on yourself. But if you don't, I mean, that's a regret. And those are the regrets that are, that are tough to live with. So I knew that if I did the right things, that if my mind was at the right place, and look, you can, you can do all these things. You can be as ready as you want to be, but you get on the court. You get in a position that you've, you've wanted to put yourself in and you don't execute. And that will happen time and time again. But if you're prepared, it's a little easier. Let me put it that way. And the focus, that's an interesting subject because when I opened that gate, the, the gated door to a tennis court and I walked in, I was in my zone. From the moment that I would close that door behind me, that was my oasis, no matter how many great or bad things were were happening with me or around me, no matter how successful or how down I was, it just, everything went out and I would just focus on the, the ball with my team. I would process all this information and then I would leave and I'd put it all behind me. And there's a time and place for everything. And so for me, it was entering that court. There's something... I had that feeling every time that I'd go walk through a tunnel at, at a center court. I knew that once once the tournament director would open that gate and I'd walk in, it was zoning in. 
This is my project. This is what I've worked for. And I'm going to give it everything I have. There's nothing quite like that. And that I found so far in in the environment that we've lived in in the last 16 to 18 months, it's been very challenging to recreate. So that's when I say giving myself time, whether it's going in my basement or going outside and being in nature and spending an hour and a half of doing certain things that remind me of that passion and the drive and the focus, which comes more physically, but I think it transitions into the mindset that, that that I then bring into my meetings or that I bring into my thought process. I become a clear thinker and, and just a tougher opponent all around. Like I I get on an investor call and I'm I'm kind, but I'm <laughs> I'm tough. Like this is business and and you know you're you're there to get an investment and yeah it's but it's different. It's not the same. It, right. It's different. It's not the same though what I love about your answer is that what you discovered here is that there's like a core DNA to what you were doing that translates over. You know, it's like, you don't need a gate to walk through in every environment in order to be able to zone in, but there are other ways to find how to get that same value. Certainly. Yes. And and those are the lessons that I, I hope that I, an experience that I hope that keep following me through, you know, through all you know, stages of my life. Yeah. Maria, let's just talk about one more subject and then I'll let you get back to your day, which is, which is actually what you were talking about a second ago, which is investors, because you are on calls with investors, you also invest. And so I'd love to talk about that from both sides. First, curious what you have learned about being on calls with investors, (laughs) what you found really works, maybe what you've adjusted along the way, what can entrepreneurs learn that maybe you have just learned? A few things I'd say, and they're all very different. I mean, all companies function very differently, especially investor groups and and in the virtual world, it's, it's a bit of a stiff atmosphere, right? Especially when you join and you haven't met anyone. So there's occasionally that, you know, they'll go around the the virtual boardroom and and do some icebreakers and ask them some questions and it kind of gets the conversation going. But then 15, 20 minutes in and and you haven't talked about the company that you're pitching. (laughs) So it becomes a little awkward. The one thing I'd say is you present a deck, you know, you have a fantastic looking, chic, cool, great numbers. You're the best of the best on this piece of paper. But the investors ultimately know there must be, it's not all perfect, right? There are caveats in your business. And, and I'd say the, a few times I've been on the calls where, where companies and founders are, are honest about their, their disadvantages, are honest about some of the things and, and qualities that they don't have on their team or what they're lacking, like almost doing the homework for these investors and presenting that homework so that there's there's an in- initial trust happening in this meeting. And although these meetings are a bit awkward, you know, you get off the call and you're like, wow, someone told me like a few negatives about their business. It wasn't like rainbows and butterflies. And there's an element of trust that I think is is important in, in every type of relationship, personally, professionally, and it goes a really long way. So if you can do your homework, the good and bad for these investors, I think it's really helpful. Yeah. Sharing that kind of stuff is so valuable, but also probably so hard for a lot of founders because you, of course you want to, you want to paint a rosy picture. You want to be like, I'm the person who's got it all together. And the idea that sharing weaknesses could be an asset is something that I think is very foreign to people. I guess there's a a right amount of everything, but if, if, if your company is particularly strong and, and you don't consider there so many weaknesses to acknowledge in front of these meetings, 
there could be own personal stories that you can share of challenges that you faced as a, as a person. It doesn't necessarily have to be connected to the, the business that you're selling. It's a way to be more, more personable, more human, which ultimately, yes, we speak about money and, and making big dollars and investments. And it's, it's a very intimidating world. And, and the one thing that I, I guess the, the quality that I'm able to, to bring into these conversations is, is more on a human level because I realistically, I, I had a very good understanding of, of losing and winning and, and the feelings that, that come with those things and, and doing it in front of hundreds and thousands of, of eyeballs every single day and having to face up to it and getting up on the podium saying, yeah, today was a tough day and this is what happened and this is what I'm going to do to overcome it. But I think there's something valuable in, in also sharing your own personal journey and not necessarily around your business or around dollars. Mm. Finally, let me stay on this theme, but kind of turn it to your perspective as founders approach you. A thing that we both have in common, for what it's worth, is that people probably pitch us a lot or want our attention, right? Me, because of the magazine, you for a kind of wide range of, of business and athletic insights. And I have found that most people, when they approach me, they do exactly the opposite of the thing that you just described, which is that they don't, they don't do the work for me. They instead often come with like a buffet of random information about themselves. And they hope that I will browse through it as I might at a Vegas buffet and, and select what I like. And of course it doesn't work like that. And so I've, I've come up with this line that I say to people all the time, which is like, don't ask for an opportunity, be the opportunity. And I'm curious what you have seen from your end as, as founders approach you of, of what they what they do well and what they what they don't do well as they try to get your attention and, and hope to work with you. There's definitely a little bit of what you just described, but I feel like presentations and, and decks are are over the top mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're and they're becoming increasingly longer and longer. <laughs> <laughs> by the time you're on like page 15, I'm like, right. You're like, I don't even it. know what this business is. <laughs> like, yeah. Lord. Right. Suddenly it's war and peace. So keep it clean and crisp and short <laughs> is preferable. But I love speaking and hearing someone's story and the authentic human story. And if you're able to do that in person, the better. And if you're not spend more time with them and don't start with the business. Because it never, when challenges come, which they will within the, the time frame of, you know, from investing to selling to growing, it's not about the business. It's about the person that's going to handle those things. Mm-hmm. So you always, I mean, in my sport, I hired people that I could lose with, that I'd be comfortable losing in because that environment was going to propel me to keep going forward. They're the people that would give me the best support the best advice that would take losses. They would take them hard. You want them to take them hard because you want them to be competitive. But if those are the people in whose presence you'd want to be when you lose, I mean, I'm sure you'll be able to celebrate well with them. That's a really powerful thought to find the people that you can lose with because it, well, first of all, it, it just acknowledges that there are going to be some losses, which is like a hard thing to acknowledge, but Let's be realistic. Nobody goes undefeated. And also, I think an important thing for people to think about, because I would imagine that if somebody, if they're like, I've got a limited amount of time to pitch my company to Maria Sharapova, well, they're going to be like, well, she doesn't care about me. She's going to care about the opportunity. So let me just skip me and go straight to the opportunity. But you're saying- And that's the mistake. Yeah. You're saying that's the mistake. Yeah, absolutely. Maria, this has been- uh, agree? Well, yeah. 
Oh, do I agree? Yeah. You stopped me from rapping. Yes, I do. Well, look, I do. I think that you can get the balance wrong. You can spend so much time talking about yourself that you forget to explain what the opportunity is. And I think that sometimes founders have a challenge or anybody has a challenge of like understanding what part of their story is the part that's going to connect with other people. And so what they end up doing is they just like tell you everything, right? They just like dump it all on you, which is, I think, why you get those like 50 page decks. When I think back on the the people who I've connected with, who, you know, who, who I connected with in a work context, but who I felt the best about and who stay in my mind the most and who I circle back to. Yeah. It's the people who I feel like I get their business, but I also, I also got them as people as well. And I suppose what happened is that the conversation wove in and out in a really fluid way between getting to understand them and getting to understand their business. And that as we talked about business, that the perspective and humanity was shared along the way. Absolutely. I agree. This has been fantastic. I just, I really appreciate your, your thoughts and, and perspective and insights for entrepreneurs, which I think are really, really valuable. And I'm totally jotting down. Occasionally I do an interview and I, afterwards I just like jot down something somebody said. And I like, when I had an office, which I don't anymore, but when I had an office, I would stick it on the wall. But anyway, find people you can lose with is on that proverbial wall now. Uh, Cause I just think that's really wonderful. So anyway, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to Problem Solvers wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Monday morning and you don't want to miss it. And hey, be kind. Pass the show along to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost. And did you solve a problem that would be good for this show? Let me know about it. Visit my website, jasonpfeiffer.com, J-A-S-O-N-F-E-I-F-E-R.com, where you can find my contact information and all sorts of other valuable info. Problem Solvers is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for all all your entrepreneurship needs and even better subscribe to our magazine which is just full of the smartest entrepreneurs solving the toughest problems my name is jason pfeiffer the editor-in-chief of entrepreneur magazine thanks for listening and hey let's go solve some problems